You've found the place where healthcare's foremost leaders, thinkers, doers all come to share, to inspire, and to build a better healthcare world, one idea at a time. This is Patient No Longer. Welcome in. I'm Ryan Donahue, thought leader, author, and strategic advisor with NRC Health and host of Patient No Longer, the podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what's making healthcare more human. Welcome in, everyone. Thank you for joining again for the Patient No Longer podcast. We are going to dig in, especially on that word patient, and I'm really excited to be talking to Brandon Jones. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Ron. Thank you for having me. Excited for the conversation. I'm excited, too. You've got a really interesting way of thinking about healthcare and specifically the patient experience, and that is partially formulated because of your role. So Brandon is the System Patient Experience Manager for Carillion Clinic. He is a self-styled patient experience warrior. I love that. So we've got to dig into that. He's also an adjunct faculty for a nursing program, and he himself hosts a podcast. His podcast is Real Nurses, Real Talk with his co-host, which is also his wife, Erin. We're singing from the same sheet of music, but you also have a really interesting take. And so I think a lot of listeners who agree with NRC Health's human understanding movement and want change in healthcare, I think they will really benefit from some of the really unique angles that you take on certain topics. You have a great background, very deep background as a nurse. And you also feel very strongly about data. You talk about how data is used in healthcare. And one thing that stuck with me is how you say data drives no one. First time I heard you say that, I wrote that down. When you say data drives no one, what do you mean by that? I think that we have to fundamentally look at how we are positioning and how we are using data. My belief is that data should be the reflection behind the work that we're doing, not the driving force of that work. I was actually just in a meeting a couple of days ago and I heard somebody talking about data-driven performance. And I was like, wait a minute, should our performance really be driven by data or should it be guided by data? Because if we're data-driven, then does that mean, well, our mission has something to do with data and our vision? How about we be data-guided? And we allow the data to guide our decisions. But ultimately, we're driven by our mission, our vision, our values, what's in the best interest of the patient. I think about myself when I went to nursing school. I didn't go to nursing school to be in the 90th percentile. When I'm helping to teach the next generation of nurses, I can guarantee that none of those nursing students woke up and came to clinicals that day and that are going through clinicals and working that 12-hour clinical shift to one day be in the 90th percentile. That's not what drives anybody. And unfortunately, many times our data is used to try to drive people and it just doesn't work. Our data is the reflection behind the work that we're doing. So as leaders, we have to make sure that we are positioning the data correctly. Because I think that once you go in and you say, our goal is to be in the 90th percentile. Well, when you say that, you kind of lose me, honestly. I think that when you position the data correctly, what you're then saying is our goal is to be patient-centered. Our goal is to reduce suffering. Our goal is to have safe, high-quality care as demonstrated by kind of the difference between a goal and a target, right? As demonstrated by us improving, maybe being in the 90th percentile. And I think I understand what people are saying when they talk about being a data-driven organization. I think I do. I fundamentally understand that. 
but I think that also words matter. And the words that we use with our teams are very, very important. And we really, I think, are seeking to be data guided, where the data is guiding us. And one of the reasons that I feel so strongly about that, right, is that so often when we are driven by the data, then the data just becomes another number. And it's really easy to forget that every single one of those data points is a human being that our team has served. We begin to dehumanize the human experience. So yes, let us be data guided, not data driven. It's a small word change, but I agree with you. And I think in many ways, this rallying cry of being data driven is sort of this really strong correction to feeling like, well, there was a time when we didn't use data at all, at least to measure patient experience. And I think there's been an overcorrection on that. I still remember big data. Remember when there was a Harvard Business Review and it was in Modern Health, everybody was talking about big data and then COVID just wiped that away. And I think we also found that it's not just about having lots of data and we at NRCL provide plenty of data, but it's about the right data. I'm curious to just dig on this further, the dashboard. You know, there's a psychology around dashboards and I want you to cover a couple of things on this. One, I have seen so many care teams who look at a dashboard and no matter how much green is on that dashboard, if it's a stoplight or how much positive feedback there is, always see people drifting towards the negative and going towards where the numbers aren't great. And I want you to talk about your view of that and maybe the psychology of that. The other thing that I notice is there's sort of this surrogacy of the data where we might feel good about what's happening on the floors and in our sense of the units and we're talking to patients and we're there on the ground floor doing this. But then the data tells us our net promoter score is down this month or this quarter or our cap score, whatever the score is, is actually down. And I've seen that just deflate entire care teams who thought things were going one way, but the data tells us they're going the other. Do you feel the same way about some of those sort of things? Am I looking at it differently than you? I'm just really curious for your take on those sort of situations that arise. No, I completely agree. And to the first question, I think that that's because the data is framed incorrectly. So whenever I talk to leaders, I say, you've got to do two things with data. You've got to frame it correctly and you've got to position it correctly. So we've already talked to positioning. You've got to ensure that it is the reflection of the work, not the driving force behind the work. But then the framing of the data correctly is we have to understand what it is that we're actually reporting out. So for our organization, we report out top box, right? And what we hear so often is, well, it's only patients that are angry that send us feedback. Well, that's categorically false. The overwhelming percentage of patients that are providing us with feedback are providing us with really positive feedback. And for those patients that are providing us with quote negative feedback, the vast majority of them are doing it because they want to see it improve. They're not trying to burn the organization down to the ground, right? So we've done a really, I think, poor job of framing the data correctly to say, this is a hot box score for patient experience. It doesn't tell the whole story. Even if we're at 70, 80% top box, where is the other 20%, 30% of patients? And what I have found is the vast majority of those patients are in the very next category, right? Very good versus good, depending on what you're measuring. It's really about framing that data correctly. But I think that the, the question goes back to the original question about the drive. Because if I go in and I look at that dashboard and I've got all this data up there 
and I'm thinking, man, I did really great work last week. Is it going to be reflected in the data? Did you do really great work because it's reflected in the data or did you do really great work because you know that you did really great work? You heard patients tell you that you did really great work. And just back to that original question, just really quick. One of the other issues that I have with being data driven is that that tends to mean that we need minimum insizes in order for us to be able to say, well, we have really good confidence in this data. And I know that this is something that NRC believes, but what I believe is that all of this work happens within an N of one. And if we are data guided, then I just need an N of one to be able to guide some decisions, right? So it gets rid of kind of that baseline of, oh, I have to have this many returns in order for this data to be valid in order for me to believe in it. We might feel good about going one direction, but then the data tells us the other direction and we get deflated by that. Or maybe the, the converse of that, of course, Brandon, would be maybe it gives us some false hope. Maybe our NPS has gone up and we can't explain why, but we feel great about it. And then it comes crashing down. Do you ever feel like teams get, I don't know, manipulated is probably too strong a word, but just sort of, you know, that it affects them in a way that is maybe not all that helpful. I do. And I think that's because most of the time we're focused solely on quantitative data. We're only looking at the quantitative data. We are surmising our own beliefs of why the data looks like it does. When we should really be allowing the patients and families to tell us why they're giving us the results that they are. So I will frequently tell leaders, if you only have time to look at one data point, look at the feedback, the qualitative data that your patients, that your team has served, look at that feedback. And I guarantee you that if you take that feedback, you read it and you share it, the team is going to be motivated in a way that you've never seen. They're going to be motivated in a way that you can never be motivated by quantitative data and trends and graphs and all that stuff. Because we know that stories are powerful, right? We know that stories are powerful. So share that qualitative data. And when you do that, the quantitative data, it's going to come. It's going to, it's going to be reflected in the work that you're doing. It's going to follow. Don't focus on that. Focus on providing the safest, highest quality, most, com most compassionate care that you can. And everything else will follow. It'll all fall right into place. I think that's very hopeful. And it's also a good reminder of just where we are in the world of data. You know, it's wild to think that HCAPS feels like it's been around forever, but it's only been publicly reported for 15 years. And we have listeners and viewers who can well remember the pre-CAPS days and all the promises that were made around the time of CAPS. And then the long decade and a half since. But I think we're just sort of finding our way on data. I think there was a time where you used very little, at least in business performance in healthcare. And now there's been a time where we are inundated with it. And one of the things I always appreciate about the NRC Health Take is that we provide plenty of data, but we don't want to provide you with the most data or the biggest dashboard. We want to provide you with the right data. And sometimes that's only a couple of metrics. I just think that your take on data is so refreshing and we could probably talk about data all day, but there's something else I want to ask you about. And that is a little more of a national issue and a little more of a psychological issue. And I will set up why I'm asking you this question, but it is about healthcare heroes. And it was an incredible movement. It brought a tear to our eye for those who are on the caregiver side and the things that you witnessed. It was incredible to feel supported in that way. And we'll never forget the pizzas and the yard signs and all of those things as we battled COVID together. It's 2023. And as Physical events have returned. I have noticed in some of those circles with 
healthcare folks, I mean, some of these are leaders, some of these are C-suite. There is a lot of cynicism about how healthcare heroes is long gone. And it's gone from heroes to zeros. And, you know, I've heard it in a few different ways, but essentially that this bubble has burst and it's gone. And now things might even be worse than they were in 2019. And I found that very interesting. So I've got to ask you, what is your take on what the healthcare heroes movement was and then what it is now? And if what I'm hearing is what you yourself are seeing. Yeah. So just to, to lay the foundation, I think that when we talk about healthcare heroes, it's important to recognize that our care teams, the work that they did, it was heroic before COVID. It was heroic while we were in COVID and it was heroic and will be heroic well after COVID is but a thought in our mind. So that's just to kind of lay the foundation. One of the issues that I have with healthcare heroes is that when we view people through the lens of a hero, as opposed to doing heroic work, it can be really easy to forget the fact that we're human. We're actually human beings first, right? And whenever I give a keynote to a bunch of nurses, I always wear a shirt. I thought about wearing this today, but I didn't wear it. So I thought about, there's a shirt that I will have that it has the word heroes on it, but it's marked out and it has the word humans underneath of it. When we put it in our mind that we are heroes, well, then we can get into this martyr mentality. I don't need to take a break. I don't need to refresh and refuel and recharge and I can just come in and work 16 hour shifts and I'll be absolutely fine. And, and it can create this martyr mentality. So we have to recognize that, yes, the work is heroic, period. When you sacrificially give of yourself to care for other human beings, that is heroic work. But we are human beings first. We're just like the fellow human beings that we're caring for. We are human beings first, which means that We've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to take care of each other. But for the population as well, I think one of the issues around healthcare heroes is you think about a hero like Superman, right? He could not be hurt. I could say anything that I wanted to him. I could assault him all I wanted. He can take blows all day long, right? That's not true for our care teams. Yes, they're doing heroic work, but they are human beings first. And they are here to care for you as a fellow human being. So I don't think it's as much heroes to zeros as I think it may be a recognition maybe that the work is heroic, I'd like to say, but we in and of ourselves were human beings first. And, and it's sad to hear when you talk about maybe people in the C-suite that feel that way too, because I think that we in healthcare have to recognize and have to continually reinforce that this is amazing, amazing work that you all are doing, but you're human beings first. And that means that all the other stuff that goes along with being a human being. There's a lot of hope in your answer. And I think that that's so powerful, this idea that we're humans. It certainly flows right into NRC Health's mission, which I don't even think you intended to do. But just this idea that we're human beings, we're not just patients. I mean, in our book, Patient No Longer, we talk about how it's not just about patienthood, which can be a very small part of your life or even of your journey of a particular healthcare sense. We're not just consumers because consumers implies it's all about money and it's about making decisions, which is important, but you also are vulnerable. And that person on the other side of the stethoscope or the other side of the bed is a human being as well. I think we would do well to consider that. And I'm also with you in the sense that I hope it's not pervasive among leadership or C-suite. Just because I've heard it here or there doesn't mean that they all share this. And I think 
part of it comes from, maybe this is my next question. You know, you've seen this increase in incivility. One of the things that I track all the time is sort of the coarsening of society. And you see outright violence against caregivers. Just yesterday, there was a shooting. A security guard was killed in Oregon. Even if our local communities or our region isn't as affected, we're hearing about these things from across the country. And so there's this feeling of, you know, we were possibly revered by someone just a couple short years ago, and now we're being lashed out at or attacked. I'm only asking you this because you're a hopeful guy and you inspire me, Brandon, but what is your take when someone reads or hears or thinks about some of those situations, those negative, terrible situations, and starts to feel worse about their own situation? What would you tell them? I have two thoughts on this. Number one, and I know it's something we've talked about before, but I think that there is a lack of human compassion just among us as human beings in general, which can then come out in the way that we interact with each other. The second part is, is what I have seen in my own practice is that those examples that you give happen rarely. Now they're increasing in their occurrence, but they rarely happen. 99.9% of the patients that I care for when I'm with students, 99% of the patients that I cared for when I was a staff nurse in the emergency department in a busy level one emergency department were thankful and they were grateful for the care that I was providing. Did they respond in different ways because maybe they were afraid or anxious or worried or, or had no idea what was going to be happening next? Yeah, they absolutely would. But that was a manifestation of, of fear, frustration. It didn't mean that they didn't care for me as a person. It didn't mean that they didn't appreciate the care that I was providing. So I think it's important to put those events into context. They are 100% unacceptable, period. Any type of abuse, assault on caregivers is 100% unacceptable, period. It is also true to say that they happen a very, very rare amount of time. When they do happen, it goes all over the news and we should know about it. We should be able to work to try to prevent it and, and putting steps and things to do that. But the vast majority of patients that we are caring for, our fellow human beings, are thankful and they are appreciative of the care that our teams are providing them. You are not alone in your assessment because I've actually done some research on this. I can't lead the question with research, right? But just coming around on the back end, using Market Insights, which is our national consumer-driven tool, so not just based on a patient experience. We can ask audiences in over 300 markets, you know, what's your take on this? What's your take on that? And we ask them really about healthcare heroes, but specifically, has your view of healthcare worsened from what your view was before COVID? And then even more in depth, what is your view of quality of your local healthcare providers and organizations from before COVID to now? And the vast majority actually we're neutral, Brandon. Now, normally we wouldn't celebrate neutral, maybe. We would, you know, look at the yellow on the dashboard and get excited. But I really was excited. I mean, 70% of consumers across the country said, you know, my view of healthcare really hasn't changed. It hasn't strengthened, hasn't worsened. 18% had a better view, 12% had a worse view. So actually, the negative gains were lower than the positive gains. And also, the vast majority of people were neutral. And it was almost the exact same for quality. There was more people that felt that quality had improved and had a view to that during COVID, less people that felt that quality worsened, although there was a, a sect of folks that felt that quality was worse, but they were far outnumbered by people who said, listen, my view of quality hasn't changed. And so 
you're absolutely right. Those incidences are unacceptable, but they are rare. And healthcare is a small world. And so I think sometimes we ourselves step in the shoes of our community and say, this is bad. I'm cynical about this. We know too much. And frankly, sometimes it's really refreshing to go out and ask the community what they think. And I, I think that they would agree with you. But I actually want to dig in next on the first part of your answer, which was about compassion. And I would agree with you that I think that sometimes as a society, we're low on compassion. Maybe we're falling into the cynicism right now. I'm not sure. Your feeling and your principle, I would say it's a principle that you have that I really like is it's the utmost importance in providing healthcare to be compassionate. And when we think about how as a society, we're maybe not all that compassionate, maybe it's getting burst, maybe we're burned out on being told to be compassionate. I think there's some nurses that could call in and say, I'm told every day to be compassionate. Stop telling me to be compassionate. I would just really love your take on maybe the state of compassion and then maybe the future of compassion and how we can make sure that it's an integral part of providing care. Yeah, I think that the, the data would tell us very clearly that if there isn't a actual crisis with regards to compassion in healthcare, then there's a perceived crisis with compassion in healthcare. And I, I've been trying to figure out when exactly it happened, but there's been a shift at some point since the inception of nursing, since the days of Florence Nightingale, there's been a shift somewhere where we viewed compassion as separate from safe, high-quality care. It used to be that they were inextricably woven into that fabric of what we do, right? We provide safe, high-quality, compassionate, connected care. But at some point, and I'm still trying to figure out when exactly it happened, those things were separated. And it became either I can provide safe, high-quality care or I can be compassionate. And one of the things that I always push back on our care teams is it is not an or. It's an and. We can provide safe, high-quality care and be compassionate. Now, when I talk about that, I always have to give kind of a foundation, right? I have to give a disclaimer because what I'm not saying is that compassion is able to remedy, if you will, medical errors that occur. No. The number one driver of quality care is quality care, period. But what we know is that when we add on compassion, when we give of ourselves in the midst of the work that we're doing, patients have better outcomes. The literature is crystal clear that patients have better outcomes. And what I always tell our new folks coming in whenever I get to talk to them every single Monday in orientation, I always tell them this, that, that compassion is powerful. It is measurably powerful. It's also immeasurably powerful. And it's powerful for the recipient of that compassion but it's also powerful for you as the giver of that compassion because you'll refuel and you'll recharge when you're pouring yourself out into other people. The other part that I think is really sad when it comes to providing compassionate care is that oftentimes I'll hear caregivers, nurses, as well as physicians and, and all of our care teams, they'll say, I don't really have time to be compassionate. And it's this misunderstanding, if you will, that compassion is extra work. And I push back frequently and contend it is not extra work at all. It is the work that we're doing. It is the work that we are doing. And we do that in the midst of the work that we're already doing. That's why I group those things together. We provide safe, high quality, compassionate, connected care. The other part of that is that when we provide compassion to other human beings, I think that we are really fulfilling our own purpose, our own individual purpose. So you can go to 
the position statements of the American Nurses Association, the American Medical Association. I would challenge anybody that's listening to this in healthcare who has a professional organization to go to that professional organization. And I could almost guarantee you, I've looked at many, many of them, that compassion will be a principle of that professional organization. It's the number one principle for the American Nurses Association, that the nurses provide compassionate care. I'm not sure where we got off on at being extra work, but it is one of my missions in life as a warrior in this work that we are doing to bring compassion back to every single interaction that we have. Because I'm convinced that it will not only help us with providing safer, higher quality care for our patients, I'm convinced that it will not only help our patients to be healthier, our communities to be healthier, but it'll also help our caregivers to be healthier as well, because it does something amazing to us as human beings to be able to just give of ourselves to other people. Completely agree with you on that. And that's something that just can never be measured. And I also think too, that your point about compassion being a value. I mean, if we did a scan of every hospital across the country, you have thousands of hospitals, I'm going to say 85 to 90% would have compassion as a value. I'm going to set the under there. <laughs> and maybe the over is like 100%. But it's incredible how pervasive it is and how we talk about it. And yet we have in many ways created so much work in other areas to where it feels like, gosh, being compassionate is extra work. The way you frame that is really, really powerful. And there's an interesting reflexive quality of that with consumers peering in from the outside at a brand. So not even talking about the patient experience, but just consumers out in the community living their lives at work and traffic, taking care of their kids. When we ask them questions around, do you want your local health organization to provide compassionate care? They say yes. When we say, do you want them to use advanced technology? They say yes. Do you want to have the best doctors? Yes. I mean, all of it is yes. They don't want us to choose between high tech and high touch, if you will. They have always wanted a harmony between the two. And I think we create a false choice internally that can hurt the patient experience, but can also harm the view of consumers and what they have. I do want to zero in on something that's kind of in this idea of what we talk about, what we spend our strategic time on and communicate about internally not just on values and vision, but this mantra of patients first. And I have heard this a lot. I've asked people to write it in a book that is assigning patients no longer. You write patients first, that's our phrase. And I know that you have had even more exposure to this patients first mantra than me. And I think a lot of people probably would never detect any controversy to this phrase. And that is why... I want to ask you specifically, what's your take, Brandon, on patients first? When I think about patients first, again, I think that words matter. I fundamentally believe that I understand what people are trying to say when they talk about putting patients first. And unfortunately, just like in the patient experience world, we talk about experience versus satisfaction. Sometimes with some people, they're used interchangeably. They're not at all. We're talking about the human experience. But I think that sometimes patients first and patient-centered care are used interchangeably, and they are not interchangeable at all. They are two completely different mindsets, if you will. I mean, I think about patient-centered care, where the patient is at the center of every decision, every strategy, every discussion, everything that we do. But then how do you positionally put the patient at the center of the work that you're doing, but then also put them first? Like, to me, that doesn't make any sense. And what I tell caregivers is this, you'll hear those patient first all the time. You'll hear it all the time. 
in order to truly put patients first, our care teams have to put themselves first, period. And we hear it every single time we get onto an airplane, right? Whenever we get onto an airplane, they always tell you, if something happens with the cabin pressure, you have to put your oxygen mask on first before you can help other human beings. Well, that I would say is a passenger-centered approach where you're putting yourself first so that you can then care for the other people that are with you. In order for our care teams to truly put patients first, they must put themselves first. They got to take care of themselves. They've got to take care of each other. And I would say that in order for our leaders to truly put patients first, they must put our care teams first. Now, that does not in any way say that we exist for our care team. I think that's two completely different thought processes, right? Because sometimes I'll get some pushback when I say that and they'll say, well, we exist for our communities. You're exactly right. That's why they're at the center of the work that we do. That means that we exist for them. But when we say that we put them first, I think that that negates the fact that we have caregivers that we must take care of so that they can show up every single day to care for our communities. I always tell our new folks when they're coming in, I am literally imploring you because I recognize some of them, this is their first day with us as an organization, but for some of them, it's their first day entering into this incredible industry that we call healthcare. And I tell them, do not allow the sun to set on this day without creating an actionable plan for how you will care for yourself. Because quite frankly, without our care teams, without putting them first, we don't have a mission. We don't have a vision. We don't have a value. We don't have anybody to take care of anybody. I push back very, very hard, respectfully, on the patient's first mantra. I recognize that it's like a mission statement for a lot of people. There's a local hospital association that has a patient's first type podcast. And I push back a lot on that mantra because we must put our care teams first so that our patients can be at the center of the work that we do. I knew you'd have a particularly lively way of answering that. So I had to ask it. And I agree with you. And I think maybe if I were to play defender of patients first, in some ways originate as don't forget about the patient because it can be easy to trap ourselves in all the things we have to worry about and staring at a screen and forget who's in front of us and the reason why. But you do a great job of couching it that way. And frankly, I think, and I'd be curious your take on this too, this idea of burnout that I'm constantly serving others and it's all about them and you know I don't need a lunch break and the hero mentality. Do you think all of that is combined psychologically to have people putting themselves last and then feeling that lack of purpose? And then does burnout creep in from there? I mean, what's your take on that part of it in terms of workforce? Yeah, I absolutely do. And for me personally, I hate the word burnout. I really, really despise it because I think that it puts the onus back on the the person that's experiencing it just as a little sidebar. Like I think about a match, if you were to light it and the match burnout, then it wasn't long enough or wasn't built of enough quality material. So I like to really frame it in the way that it actually is when we're talking about emotional exhaustion, compassion fatigue, moral injury, moral distress. And I do think that you're exactly right. This idea of putting patients first, putting them ahead of my own needs, it's not saying that I'm not going to do what's in the best interest of that patient. It's not saying that I'm I'm not going to care for that patient. But what it's saying is I fundamentally must be prepared mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way that I possibly can to care for this fellow human being. And I once heard a a speaker talk about nurses being martyrs. And you're absolutely right. I can remember when I was on the floor as a nurse, it was like, no, uh, we're short-staffed anyway. So 
you know, I won't take my lunch break. And I always push back and say, no, your patients need you to take that lunch break. Your patients need you to take that break. I think that a, a patient's first mentality, unfortunately, can help to manifest itself through and help to contribute to this idea of emotional exhaustion, compassion fatigue, where we're just saying, no, I, I've got to do this. I've got to put the patient first. I've got to do all this stuff. No, no, no. You've got to take care of yourself first. The patient's at the center of the work that we do. So if we can shift that mindset to being patient-centered and caring for ourselves, I think that's really going to go a long way and really, really help our care teams to overcome the ideas of compassion, fatigue, moral exhaustion, and just as a sidebar back to one of the previous questions, compassion and pouring ourselves into other human beings will help with that as well. There's so many interesting threads that are common threads that run through a lot of this. Now I can't get the image out of my head of the flight attendant saying, secure your mask first, which by the way, Brandon, I did get some pushback from my oldest on why I would not be securing his mask first, <laughs> but I'll just consider that a parenting challenge and I'll communicate around that. You mentioned people when they're on day one, and I want to close with this. Imagine in, in all of your career as a nurse and as a patient experience warrior and the work you do for Crillian Clinic now, imagine day one. And let's say you right now are in the elevator with someone who is on day one in healthcare. We don't know what their journey is. Maybe they're a nurse, maybe not. They're starting their journey today. What is some advice that you would transfer to them? I would ask them if I could give them some walkaways. And I, I use the term walkaway because I like to give people actionable things that they can do on day one with our organization, not just a takeaway and just kind of put in the back of your mind. Walkaways, I would give them probably three primary walkaways. The first walk away we've already talked about, take care of yourself. Do not allow the sun to set on this day without creating an actionable plan for how you are going to take care of yourself and then do it. Take care of yourself because we need you. Our patients need you because you matter. Yeah, the work that you do matters, but you matter and we need you. Walk away number two would be to focus on your purpose. Never forget why you are joining this organization. Never forget why you are entering into this incredible industry that we call healthcare. I would encourage that person to take out a note card, a piece of paper, a post-it note, something. And at the top of it, write down the word why and write out their why for the work that they're getting ready to do. And in love, I would tell them this, Ryan, I know maybe we're on a longer elevator ride, but in love, I would tell them this. The only reason you can come up with for a paycheck, then please go work somewhere else. We all have bills to pay. I get that. But you will be doing this work for so much more than a paycheck. Have you thought about it? write it down and then frequently pull that card out and recenter yourself on your purpose for doing this work because we can get so task-based and i think that's one of the issues when it comes to compassion fatigue is that we get so task-based don't do that refuse to be allowed to be task-based mentality be purpose-minded and the last one that i would give them is to give compassion freely and allow compassion to be part of your overarching purpose It'll be good and healing and powerful for the recipient, but it'll be good and healing and powerful for you as the giver of that compassion. Wow. By the time that elevator door dings open, I feel like they will have felt like they've had two years in healthcare. I mean, it's fantastic advice. I love the angle of walkaways as well. It's not just something I take and maybe use, maybe don't, but I walk out of that elevator with a really good understanding of some things to focus on. I knew you wouldn't disappoint, but you really didn't, Brandon. And this was fantastic. I can see why you call yourself a patient experience warrior. I would agree 
And I thought your takes were really wonderful. And by the way, remember, Brandon's got his own podcast with his wife, Erin, called Real Nurses, Real Talk. If you want to dig into more of this, and we'll drop some links in the bio as well. But we'll continue the conversation from here. We thank you for the time you spent with us today and always make time for you in the future again. Thanks a lot, Brandon. Thank you, Ryan. And that's the show. Thank you for joining us today as we exchange ideas, share struggles, and celebrate triumphs. Come back next month as we continue our journey through the magical and maddening world of healthcare. Never miss a show. Subscribe at nrchealth.com slash patient no longer or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Ryan Donahue, and you've been listening to Patient No Longer, a presentation of NRC Health, the founders and lead architects of human understanding in healthcare. Until next time.